0: All right, well this is as I said the final sermon Hi. on our Pastor series in the of Fellowship And today we're going to be dealing with the Mormon religion. You found it's also sermons, known as The Church hope of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints with Christ. or as I this will refer to it many however, times today, the LDS the church. That That's interchangeable in with Mormonism. We would ask that if you are in our So at the beginning of this sermon I want abundantly clear. I mean abundantly clear that Mormonism or the LDS church while valuable resources are simply no replacement for your own the Christian faith. And so, Even though many that, today would, would say, say that you it is are indeed to submit a yourself Christian to the Bible Now part of the, the reason that people would area. say this is that Thank if you, you were to Jesus. talk to a Mormon, they would actually all agree with you, at least on a surface level, of the basic facts of the gospel. They would affirm that all of mankind is born in sin, that as a result of original sin, this world has been plunged into sin and death, because of the fall, of course, that we are sinners in desperate need of redemption. And they would also likewise affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. They would also say that mankind must repent and believe, and that through Jesus Christ we inherit eternal life. And yet, every single word that I just said means something radically different in Mormonism than we know it to be. And that's precisely why Matt said this last week that the devil is always in the details. So when you get into defi- or how they define concepts, rather, like grace or mercy, faith, repentance, even the person and work of God or Jesus Christ, who man is, everything else, it's much more like Hinduism than Christianity. I would actually say that Islam is closer to the Christian faith than Mormonism is. So why would I make that claim? Well, it will become actually very clear relatively early on in this sermon So not to get into the weeds here, but the last time I got into some of the historical aspects of Islam, I don't have time to do that today because it's actually quite fascinating all on its own, and that would take about another hour or two just to go through the history of it. But it's important for everyone to know that Joseph Smith, who is the founder of the LDS Church, is the key to the whole religion. Now, the reason for this is quite simple. Everything in Mormonism ultimately starts and ends with a series of mystical revelations that Joseph Smith claimed he had. From these visions, we all get the LDS scriptures and ultimately the Mormon religion. Everything, in other words, is from his visions. He claimed that the pure form of the Christian faith was lost just after the apostles had died, and that everything since this is simply an apostate Christianity. So for thousand years plus, Ultimately, there was no true Christian faith, according to Joseph Smith. Now, it was subsequently rediscovered when he started to have his visions, if you will. And therefore, if you were to make the argument that there would be no Joseph Smith, ultimately there would be no Mormonism. There's no pure form of the Christian faith, at least according to the LDS church. For the church, they hold that there are four books that are authoritative or revelation given from God. But one of those works, which is the King James Bible, has a very important footnote to it. And that's according to Article of Faith No. 8, that the King James Bible is the Word of God much as it is translated accurately. That's an incredibly important footnote, is it not? What that means at the end of the day is that there are other three books that they hold as authoritative or as revelation, which are the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and the Covenants, These are the lens through which they will filter everything else, and especially the Bible. If you find a Bible verse that is contradicting the contents of these books, they will just simply tell you it's been translated incorrectly, right? That's Article of Faith number eight. That's literally part of the foundation of Mormonism. And this is ultimately behind the mantra of the Mormon church, which is bound up in a simple statement saying, if Mormonism is false, then nothing else is true, The words of the LDS church and the leaders and their books is the authority over everything else, not just scripture, but literally everything. If Mormonism is false, then nothing is true. It's important to keep all of this in mind at the onset simply because as you hear this sermon, many of you will be left scratching your heads. And I will actually say that if at the end of it all, you scratch your heads and you go, huh, I think I will have done my job well. At the heart of everything, in terms of Mormonism, is a concept that's called the eternal law of progression. This is, in essence, what dictates how they view God, how they view mankind, ultimately how they understand the problem, the solution, the commands, and even the blessings. So you have a man named Brigham Young, who is equally as important in Mormonism as Joseph Smith, and he talks about this eternal law of progression, and he says this, There is no such thing as principle, power, wisdom, knowledge, life, position, or anything that can be imagined that remains stationary. Nothing, in other words. They must increase or decrease. So what does that mean? Well, in short, everything is about this continual state of change or progress. It's this never-ending change. To make that concept clear, the LDS Church teaches that everything is in this constant state of either increase or decrease, because nothing can remain unchanging, not even God. They argue that the only eternal things are mankind, so that's you and I, and matter, which is just physical stuff, right? And even these are subject to this increase or decrease, this eternal law of progression. Every single thing that has ever existed, every single person that has ever existed was never actually created, not in the ultimate sense, but they were eternal. You, technically, in the Mormon faith, are considered an eternal being, meaning that in eternity past, you have always existed. What that means is that in the beginning, God was not, at least not as we know him, at least not as God. Every other being that has come into existence also never actually came into existence. They too are eternal beings without an ultimate creator, at least in the form of what's called intelligences. Now Joseph Smith himself in the Doctrine of Covenants taught this, man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can it be. They also would argue it cannot be destroyed. So he says mankind exists first as these intelligences, right? And he argues that these intelligences will come into a different state of existence at different points along this law of progression. So at first you exist as an intelligence, then at one point you come into existence in the spirit world where your spirit parents have conceived of you and you are now born as a spirit child. When they progress further down that line in the spirit world, you ultimately then are born into the world of physical beings. And the whole point of coming into existence in the physical world, according to the LDS church, is that you must be tested. You must be tested, and if you pass this test, you get to continue on into the next world where you become a god, and the whole cycle starts all over again so why do I bring this up at the forefront? This is ultimately the concept that dictates and gives an explanation for every uh, theological position that they come up with. It actually dictates their entire system of thought. The Mormon church proposes then, at the beginning, God did not, in fact, create everything that is in existence out of nothing. What that means in layman's terms is that you and God, according to the LDS church, are one and the same being or essence. You are just merely at different points in this eternal law of progression. You're not down the road as he is. So what you see in this world is merely part of this grand story of eternal progression. This is one in many billions of worlds. There are an infinite number of gods and an infinite number of worlds that have existed prior to this one, and this is simply one of many that have come into existence, and there will be an infinite number of gods and worlds after this one. And this has massive, massive implications, does it not? Everything that we've been talking about for the past several weeks, ultimately, when you out or overlay the grid on top of this system, it's going to throw it for a loop because this is what is behind it. But ultimately, it makes. God and man to be the same within LDS theology. And this is where I want us to just simply take a brief look to begin with because this actually affects everything as well, obviously. Mormon doctrine teaches that God the Father, who they call Elohim, was, again, once a man just like you and I are today. Elohim went through this eternal law of progression on another planet before our world was created. Right. So just get that through your head to begin with. What that means, though, is at some point, He was conceived by his own set of spirit parents, and then he was born into another world by biological parents. He has not eternally existed as a supreme creator, the one true God of all that was, is, and will ever be. He was merely an exalted man, meaning he at one point became a God. When that happened, the LDS church simply doesn't have an answer for it. The reason being is they don't know anything that happened before our world, so to speak. What we have is the beginning from our world. We don't have the beginning of other worlds. We don't know exactly how he came into the state of godhood that he did. However, they do know that he was a faithful Mormon on a different planet. He was eternally sealed with his many wives, and when he was resurrected, he got to attain to the status of a god and inherit his own world where he could then propagate the world with spirit babies. And so, yes, according to LDS doctrine, God the Father is a polygamist with his many resurrected spirit wives, and they reside on a star named Kolob. But it was not enough for them to simply live on this star named Kolob. Again, they had to make spirit babies, because that's all part of this law of progression. They all have to play their part, so to speak. So the story goes on. The first of all their spirit children is Jehovah, who they call Jesus Christ. And this is what made him the firstborn above all of their spirit babies. In other words, he was actually born just as everybody else was born as a spirit baby. One of the other spirit babies that Elohim made or had was named Lucifer. And when there were enough spirit babies to begin populating the earth, there was a debate that was held essentially a council of these spirit children met to go over a plan over how all of this would shake out in this world. So Jehovah, that is Jesus in their understanding, came before the council with Elohim's plan. He would become the savior of this world. And what that meant was that he would obviously die on the cross to take our sins, but that would play out in the free moral agency or your own free will. In other words, You were given the choice if you wanted to play a part in this eternal law of progression and become gods. That's the basis of it. Now, Lucifer comes before the council with a different plan. He's arguably a Calvinist. He would take away their free will, and they would all become gods by force. The council then put these two plans to a vault, and ultimately, Lucifer's plan loses, of course. He gets mad, he convinces a third of the spirit children to rebel, and they lose. And so what happens is they now get cast out of heaven, they become Satan and the demons. And Elohim and Jehovah begin to enact their plan by placing the first spirit children on earth, known as Adam and Eve. And the rest, as they say, is history. Of course, we're going to touch on a little bit more of that, part of the story when we get to the problem. But I want us for now to simply take a step back and understand what this actually teaches about God and their concept of God. What they do at the onset is simply reject anything that is even remotely close to the Christian faith. They deny that God the Father has created everything out of nothing, creation ex nihilo, as Genesis 1.1 explicitly says. They teach and said God only created this world. All other worlds were created by some other God. He did so by organizing the chaos of pre-existing matter. So remember, in the LDS world, matter actually predates God himself, at least as he exists as God. They also teach, contrary to something like Colossians 1.16, that Christ is the first created being, meaning they'll look at that passage and they'll insert the word all, and so they'll say that Christ created all other things. The reason they do that, of course, is that Article of Faith 8, the Bible is, the word of God, in so much as it is translated accurately. At the end of the day, God the Father is merely an exalted man, and thus at one point he became God. He has not eternally been God. So think of Isaiah 43.10, and that just simply states, before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. They have to reject that. Why? Because the backbones of this religion all teaches that you and I can become gods. They reject that every member of the Trinity has eternally been one God. Every member of the Godhead in the LDS faith at some point or another was born as a spirit child. They must be one of many gods in existence, but they are not the one true God because there is no original creator of all things and there is no one true God, according to Mormonism. They reject that God, of course, is separate from creation. Remember what I said, every last one of you, according to the LDS faith, is of the same being or essence as God. You are created. Elohim, at least the true Elohim, according to the Bible, is uncreated. He shares his glory with no man. He shares his being or essence with no man. And yet, according to the LDS church, that is not true. He's just further along that spectrum of godhood than you are. So, so as long as you follow the example that he laid out, which means you live as a faithful Mormon, you too can become gods. Now, when you consider all of this, at face value, if you are to embrace Mormonism, you must, in fact, just simply reject everything that Scripture teaches about God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. At face value, you have to ditch it. And why? It all comes down to this eternal law of progression. Again, this is truly the nuts and bolts of this whole religion. It was probably best summarized by a man named Lorenzo Snow who said, As man is, God once was. And as God is, man may become. When Tony Barrier and I were talking about this, he simply summarized it a little bit better. It's the same exact lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden where he said, You will be like God. And so if all that is the foundation of Mormonism, how do you understand then the problem, the solution, the commands, and even the blessings? Well, if you think it's interesting so far, buckle up, because it's actually about to get a lot more interesting. So let's just take a look at the problem according to Mormonism. Mormonism, in fact, does teach that there is a problem that all mankind faces, but it's not the same as we would view it or understand it from Scripture. Again, because the plan of Elohim and Jehovah was that Man could become exalted gods through their free will. Mortality is designed to be a period of testing. That's it. So what that means is that there must be opposition or a choice in all things. And in order for there to be a choice, you must be faced with temptation. If this were not so, according to 2 Nephi 2.11, righteousness could not come to pass. So in other words, Adam and Eve had to have actual real choices that they could make also, they could prove to be righteous, and again, also they could move along that road to exaltation as a God. So, without the temptation, the original sin, even the presence of sin and death, man cannot become righteous. Understand that. Without sin, they say you ultimately cannot become righteous. Of course, Adam and Eve fell, but in LDS doctrine, this is why this would be considered a good thing. The 10th president of the LDS church, which he's on the level of a prophet or apostle for the Mormon church, said that if he ever makes it to the point where he could speak to Eve, remember, he doesn't know if he can because she might be far too exalted for him to make it to. However, if he does make it to that point, he says he would essentially thank her for disobeying God. The reason why he would say such a thing all comes down to that eternal law of progression. In Elohim's plan, again, Mankind had to have a stomping grounds for temptation. They had to be able to prove themselves. All the other spirit babies had to be proven. All they could do in order to become a god, again, necessitates the fall. It necessitates sin. So without the fall, you don't have the ability to be tested, and therefore, you cannot become a god. And so then you might ask the question, how does sin and judgment even play into this? If that's The basis of the problem. Well, in one sense, it really doesn't. Infants, they say, inherit certain consequences and effects of the fall, but there's ultimately no transfer of guilt due to the original sin of Adam and Eve. Again, that's article of faith number two. The consequence of Adam's sin, then, is not that sin is foisted upon them, that they are now in this realm in which they are under the act of judgment of God, that God's wrath is suspended above all humanity. No, It says that instead they take on mortality, meaning they'll die at one point, and at some point they will sin, to some extent, because everybody does. However, they're not born into that state of existence where it is part of their very nature to be a sinner. Even, in fact, according to the LDS Scriptures, all children are born without the ability to sin until what they say is the age of accountability, which is age eight. So every last one of you, if you have kids in this room, if they're under the age of eight, just understand that. They are not able to sin. You laugh, you're like, okay. (laughs) That proves total depravity, by the way. If you have kids, you don't have to teach them how to obey. Or rather, you don't have to teach them how to disobey. You have to teach them how to obey. But they argue that once they hit eight, that's when sin kicks in. Up until that point, they don't at all. And the reason for it is because they're not rationally thinking about any bit of it. They are not making actual real choices because their cognitive ability is lacking. So do you see how that concept of sin fleshes out even in this? It's not like Psalm 51, five says where it's you're brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. It goes, no, not until the age of eight. Ultimately, sin's not even a fundamental problem until you reach the age of eight. If you die before you're eight, it doesn't matter you can immediately reach the highest level of the exalted godhood in the Mormon church. But again, even if you do reach the age of eight, it's just merely the stomping grounds for you to prove yourself. None of it rests upon the reality that sin is a curse. In fact, arguably, if you lead it to its logical conclusion, sin has to be a blessing. It has to be a blessing because it is the very means by which you can become your own God. But let's continue on. So again, they actually teach on the reality of sin and even judgment in some capacity. Again, this is a problem as they view it, but not even remotely close to how the scriptures view it. The way they define sin is that it's simply any willful wrongdoing or any willful failure to do what is right. So do you catch that? Willful failure. And here's what they mean by that. If you commit sin when you know it and you rationally go against God's commandments or fail to do what is right, that's when it is sin. Up until that point, if you do not knowingly or willingly do it, it's merely called a blunder. Joel Osteen might put it as an oopsie-daisy. Once you know it's wrong, though, it becomes sin. However, in contradiction to that, according to Moroni seven fourteen through 18, it says we are all able to judge what is sin as clearly as we are able to tell the day from the night. Why? Because it says the Spirit of Christ is given unto every man that he may know good from evil, and he shows us the way we must judge. So in other words, even though you must know it is sin, even though you must willingly do it as sin for it to be counted as sin, It also says every man, woman, and child, at least if you're above the age of eight, remember, has a way to know good from evil. So then what does the LDS church consider sin? Well, in much the same way that you and I would define it, in terms of just the actual actions, they would look at those actions and say those indeed are sinful. However, there are a few exceptions to the general rule here, meaning some sins are viewed worse than others. So they've got basically three major categories of sins. The third worst category of sin is sexual sin. Not, again, because it grieves God, not because it brings wrath and judgment, not because it alienates you from him, but only because it's not possible to restore your lost virtue. That's it. The second worst sin you can commit is murder. Again, not because you killed somebody in the image of God, not because sin grieves God and it brings you to hell and judgment. Ultimately, It's because you can't restore the life you took. The sin, by the way, is extremely hard to be forgiven of, and you have to do some digging to find out how, but the basic gist of it is that if you have shed your blood after you've committed murder, then you can be forgiven. You have to, in other words, atone for your own sin. The blood of Jesus Christ is not enough to forgive you of this sin. The worst sin, and this is the only unforgivable by the sin, is what they say is blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Now, what they mean by that is that you are a son or daughter of perdition. And so you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, a son or daughter of perdition is one who was once a faithful Mormon who committed apostasy from the LDS Church. Everybody else in some way, shape, or form gets a free ride. However, even this, depending on who you're talking to, has some pretty drastic differences because they'll say you not only had to have a full knowledge of the Mormon faith, a full saving knowledge, in other words, you not only had to be baptized and everything else that they do, but you had to have a a vision or an encounter with the living Jesus Christ at one point or another. So perhaps if you're ex-Mormon at one point, you'll get beyond all that too. If they're a more conservative Mormon though, you have no chance. Again, these are the only people they say will eventually find themselves in hell for all eternity along with Satan and the demons. That's it. Do you not see how much of a trap that is? Right off the bat. And so then this brings us into the concept of what they say is judgment. And they say this also takes place in two different forms. The first which I just mentioned is that only those who have committed apostasy from the LDS church are reserved for hell. Everybody else, this is utterly bewildering concept where damnation, as they call it, because it is called damnation, does not actually refer to eternal punishment or, as we would understand, damnation, but merely being stopped along that line of progression to becoming a god. So what that means is that for everyone who is not Satan, a demon, or an ex-Mormon, is that you do not suffer eternal wrath. You just won't become a god. That's their concept of damnation. Instead, they say you'll go to a place called spirit prison after you die, and you're going to have a chance to hear the LDS gospel, and you'll be given another chance to believe the LDS gospel. Now, evidently, some still won't repent in spirit prison, but that doesn't stop them from going to the lowest level of paradise. We'll get into that in a little bit. But again, the only people who can go to hell in Mormonism are ex-Mormons. That's it. Everything, again, boils down to this law of eternal progression. And it culminates in you becoming a god. And so their concept of damnation just simply means you don't get that prize. If you don't make it as a god, you are considered damned. That's the problem in a nutshell. That's what they believe is the fundamental problem. Sin doesn't separate you from God, Sin doesn't bring his eternal wrath. There's no sense of justice that needs to be accomplished. You can't become God. Well, if that's the problem, what's the solution? What are the commands? Well, in the LDS church, they're basically one and the same. The entryway into the Mormon faith is bound up in what they call the four fundamentals of the gospel. And they say these are faith, repentance, baptism, and laying on of the hands. Pretty innocuous-sounding terms, right? Now, everyone but ex-Mormons, Satan, and the demons will experience some level of salvation. I'm going to come back to that, but I want you to understand that these four fundamentals of the gospel are what you have to do if you want to progress on that eternal law of progression. If you want to become a god, in other words. For the LDS Church, faith is defined as believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, though. That's what they'll say right out the gate. And what that entails, they'll say, is that you must believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. He is the only means to be forgiven of your sins and even free from the finality of death. Through his atonement, they say, you become justified or declared innocent before God by faith. And so you hear that and you're like, it's pretty good. Not bad so far, right? How many of you would say that if you're talking about the gospel? Here's what they mean by this. By the way, justification is merely the starting point on the path toward righteousness, meaning that through justification, it's not a once and for all declaration made by God that you now have the very righteousness of Christ covering you. It is merely the entranceway into repentance and baptism. It's the starting point. Once you are justified, You must then repent, be baptized, and obey in order for you to become righteous. In other words, it's your own righteousness that you still must work towards. It is not the righteousness of Christ which is granted to you exclusively by faith in his finished work. By faith, you simply enter the gate of repentance and baptism. That's 2 Nephi 31.17. Repentance, then, what is that seen as? Well, ultimately, repentance is not a change of mind in which you cast your full faith upon the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. No, repentance is that you must work. It's an action. You must strive to the end of your life in order to be saved. No text clearly demonstrates this more than probably Moroni 8.25. It says, in the first fruits of repentance, so again, the first fruits of repentance is baptism, and baptism comes by faith unto the fulfilling the commandments, And the fulfilling, the commandments, brings remission of sins. All up to you. Baptism, then, is just simply another work one must perform in order to be saved. The Doctrine and the Covenants, this is more of their theological work here. Doctrine and the Covenants, 112, verse 29 says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believes not and is not baptized shall be damned. The only baptisms that they consider valid are those performed by the priesthood in the LDS church. So understand that if you are not baptized by the LDS church, by the Aaronic or the Melchizedek priesthood, I don't have time to get into all that, so you have to just trust me there. If you're not immersed fully, no salvation. And then they say the laying on of the hands is performed immediately after baptism. And this too brings remission of sins. This, too, can only be performed by the LDS priesthood. And the reason, again, is that this is necessary for salvation. So how do they argue that? Well, ultimately, when they lay the hands upon you by the priesthood, what happens is now you are endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must have presence in the Mormon in order sorry, forgive me— The. The Holy Spirit must have a presence in the Mormon in order for them to be saved because by the Holy Spirit you learn the fullness of the truth of all saving knowledge. So can you wrap your mind around that? If I were to put it in layman's terms, essentially without the Spirit, they say you cannot grow in respect to the fullness of the knowledge you must have. You must have an entire body of knowledge in Mormonism to be saved. It's not that you can simply believe in the simple gospel. You must have this entire body of knowledge before you can possibly even hope to be saved. And yet you can still lose it. But again, if the priesthood doesn't perform this right, no Holy Spirit, no salvation. Do you not see how at the fundamental level, every one of these, faith, repentance, baptism, and laying on of the hands, is ultimately what they believe brings forgiveness of sin. It is all up to you, in other words, or part of the priesthood. So when they say salvation, when they say justification, when they say grace or mercy, none of it, do they believe, is truly the free gift of God, apart from works that man may not boast. Instead, all of it, in some component or another, involves not only your work, but the work of the priesthood. It's all something you must participate in so you can be cleansed from sin. It's not, in other words, on the basis of Christ's life, death, and resurrection alone that one is saved. It's always something more. In fact, the LDS Church actually just teaches explicitly, you cannot be saved in your sins. Alma 11.37 states, And I say to you again that he cannot save them in their sins, for I cannot deny his word. And he has said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can you be saved except ye inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, you cannot be saved in your sins. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And all of God's people breathe a collective sigh of relief. But beyond all of this, they say that you must abide by continued obedience to gospel rules and principles. In other words, even these four fundamentals of the gospel, so-called, are not enough to save you you must continue on the path of repentance and obedience all your life. In other words, you have to become righteous. Also, you can enter heaven and also you can be exalted to the point of being a God at one point. At the end of the day, it's up to you. And LDS Scripture makes this painfully clear. Second Nephi 25.23 says, For we labor diligently to write, To persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ. And if you stop there, it would be fantastic. And to be reconciled to God. Okay, great, too. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Awesome. After all we can do. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and if you love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you? So the question is, how well are any of you doing in that? Right? Have you denied all ungodliness? Have you loved God with all your might, mind, and strength? It's only then that his grace is sufficient for you. Sure, we are saved by grace, but after all, we can do. This is your burden to bear in the Mormon faith. Do you not see how vile and just soul-crushing that is? That's not just a gospel that damns, by the way, beloved. That's a gospel that kills the soul. That's a gospel that they say is ultimately the solution for the believer. That's how you're counted as worthy. That's how you can be a Mormon and continue to live an excellent life. That's how you can be forgiven. And the kicker is again, you can lose all of this radically easy. You simply take communion in an unworthy manner, you're done. You've been divorced, you've not tithed enough, you're done. But of course, there is a silver lining to it if you're an unworthy Mormon, as long as you've not committed apostasy. Or if you're like any one of us, if you're not a Mormon at all, they have a different road. Of salvation, essentially. So, unworthy Mormons and everyone else, again, that's except apostate Mormons, Satan, and the demons, everybody else will die and go to what I said was spirit prison, right? People from the highest level of heaven will then come down to you and proclaim the gospel. They're a very missionally oriented people, even after death. Those in spirit prison, they say, will have the opportunity to undergo all four fundamentals of the gospel which means that you can come to faith, repent, be baptized, and take part in the laying on of the hands so you receive the Holy Spirit. Again, contrary to it, it signed assigned once for man to die and face judgment. False. Translated inaccurately, they say. However, as a spirit, you might look at it and say, okay, I can understand if I'm going to at least pretend here that you can have faith and even repent. But if the LDS priesthood must be present in order to baptize you by immersion, in order to lay on the hands so that you might get the Holy Ghost, how do you do that as a spirit? Well, the LDS church has actually come up with a way. The first rite is what they call baptism for the dead. Now in this, your worthy Mormon elder or relative can go to the temple and be baptized in your place. Now, one of the interesting side notes is that a long time ago, the Mormon church actually bought up all the genealogical records in the United States. And you know why they did that? It's ultimately for this. The reason is that your faithful Mormon relatives can then go to the temple with a list of names and be baptized in your place. In fact, they can go with up to 50 names per day. Remember, if you're not baptized by the priesthood, you're not saved. So if you're in spirit prison, you have to have somebody do it in your place. So they'll go in with perhaps up to 50 names on a, lease, or on a list. They'll go one right after the next, and they say, I'll baptize you in the name of so-and-so and bring you up, and then I'll baptize you in the name of so-and-so and bring you up again, all the way through that list. All so that dead relatives can be released from spirit prison. And this is a very industrious practice, by the way. Statistics show that about 400,000 baptisms for the dead happen every single year. That's over 1,000 a day. The second right is the laying on of the hands for the dead. It's much the same as it is for the living, right? You lay on the hands, again, by proxy, and the Holy Spirit can then come on the person in spirit prison. And so then they're released from spirit prison, and they can make their way on up to heaven. The interesting thing is that even when you're dead, if your uh, relative is a worthy enough Mormon, they can actually perform every ceremony in your place so you can still become a god. So essentially what all of this boils down to in the end for their solution is this weird form of work salvation and a form of universalism. If you're not familiar with what that is, that's okay, but essentially universalism is that that everyone gets saved at some point or another. However, again, remember, not ex-Mormons. So if you want to be saved in the sense that Mormonism teaches where you can become a god in the celestial kingdom, again, we'll get to that term in a minute, you must adhere to a form of work salvation. You must do everything within your power in order to get there. Not only do you have to obey the four fundamentals of the gospel, as they say you have to undergo several different rites and practices that can only be granted if you're a worthy Mormon. So they'll actually take and examine your life regularly. They'll examine your tithing record. They'll examine and interview different people on the basis of your own character and judgment and then say, if you're not worthy, sorry, can't do it. You can't even, even enter the temple. But again, they also must be performed by the LDS priesthood. Remember, this can still be accomplished after you've died, as long as it's done on your behalf and as long as your Mormon relative is worthy. If you don't have a Mormon relative who can perform these rites on your behalf, you have to wait it out in spirit prison. And what they say here is that there is a day when Christ's atoning work will come to full completion, you just won't become a god. So how does this happen? Well, according to the Mormon church, these people will undergo torment during the millennial rule of Jesus Christ. After the millennium, they'll be considered pure enough. It'll all be burned off, essentially, to where they can enter the celestial or the terrestrial kingdom, which the celestial is the lowest level of heaven. The terrestrial is the second. So even here, though, you have to essentially work off your sin, don't you? You have to be purified. It's not based on what Christ did on the cross. But so long as you're not Satan, a demon, or an ex-Mormon, you are all guaranteed this result. You're guaranteed it. You're considered damned. But remember, all damnation means is that you don't get to become a god. The reason, though, that you can still be saved is that they, again, believe the atonement of Jesus Christ will actually bear its full work, meaning at the end of all days, it is so good and so powerful that it just saves everybody. Apparently not good enough for ex-Mormons, though. The reason why, again, it goes down to Joseph Smith and to Brigham Young. Smith said that if it is nothing for the Lord to raise the dead to life, it's nothing for the Lord to save the dead as well. Again, the only exception are the sons of perdition. These are the ones that have no hope at all. The thing I want you to recognize about the solution, though, is that in every aspect of it, there's not a mention of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's essentially a footnote. Everything is up to you, your Mormon relative, or the priesthood. Everything relies on something other than Christ's life, death, and resurrection. In the end, it's a system that's not really concerned with the right relationship with God. They're not even bothered by that. You know why? There is no one true God in Mormonism. What matters is that you don't get to become a God. And therefore, the solution in the end is up to you or someone else on your behalf, but that should not be much of a surprise given that you can become your own God. Again, you are the source of your own solution because you are the source of Everything that could possibly come afterwards. You are an eternal, uncreated being, and therefore you can become a God. How is it not possible for you to save yourself? However, that's only the potential if you're a man. If you're a woman, you get a little bit something different, and we'll cover that now as we look at the blessings. So, what are the blessings then in Mormonism? Well, ultimately, they teach that largely the blessings are in the life to come. That is, found in three different kingdoms. They have the celestial kingdom, which is the highest, the terrestrial kingdom, which is the middle, and the telestial kingdom. And that's all part of Doctrine and Covenants 76. You guys can read that if you want to on your way home, knock yourselves out. Despite how prominent these three degrees of heaven are, though, in the LDS faith, there isn't really much teaching on what they will be like. Interestingly enough, Joseph Smith simply taught that the glories of what is to come was only revealed or is only revealed to those whom the Spirit grants visions to, so somebody like himself, and they are far too glorious to contain in human words. That's pretty convenient, right? The telestial kingdom, again, that's the lowest kingdom one can attain to, and this kingdom is reserved for the worst of offenders who did not repent in this life or in spirit prism, is one that... Joseph Smith said the glories of are incredible. He, now, he also taught this will be made up of murderers and liars and sorcerers and adulterers and uh, more. Hitler, Mussolini, all these guys, they'll be part of the celestial kingdom. Right? They weren't ex Mormon, so they can't go to hell according to their theology. What, they, what will happen is, again, they'll undergo that purification necessary during the millennium to be prepared for the glories of that kingdom. And again, these glories are beyond understanding. Elohim only knows what he prepared beforehand for them. Fun fact, Joseph Smith said that if you actually knew the glories of what awaited you in the celestial kingdom, you would simply kill yourself, so you can go there. And that's the lowest of heavenly kingdoms. That's the one where the unrepentant lives. Again, it's still a state of damnation in LDS theology, though. Why? you cannot make it further along that eternal law of progression. You cannot become a god. You'll be recognized on the council of the Jedi, but you shall not become a master. I'm Sorry, I had to throw in at least one sci-fi reference. So the terrestrial kingdom then is the second degree of paradise. And this kingdom, they say, is reserved for those who were good and moral people, but they were ultimately deceived by the craftiness of men. These will be people like you and I. Right, You and I seek to be good and moral, upright people. We seek to live upright lives, but they would say we've been deceived into a false version of the Christian faith, and ultimately that's because we don't embrace Joseph Smith or the LDS Church or any of their books. Again, this kingdom will be made up of those who came to believe in the Mormon gospel during their stint in spirit prison as well. So they're going to have some sort of a glorified body. They will see Jesus Christ, but he says, ultimately, They will not be in the presence of God the Father. Why? Because he is the highest exalted God in Mormonism. Again, this is still seen as damnation. But this realm, so to speak, is even more glorious than the celestial kingdom. Now, the celestial kingdom, they say, is the highest and the best kingdom of them all. This kingdom is reserved only for those who are faithful Mormons, who entered into the church through faith, repentance, baptism, and laying on of the hands. He says, they also continued along the straight and narrow path, which ultimately means that they worked hard. It involved things like good works and chastity and tithing and abiding by words of wisdom. And you also participated in things like endowment ceremonies or other things along those rites. Now, you can look up what all that is if you desire to afterwards, but these are just more things that you have to do through the priesthood in order to be more righteous. However, There are some who will never have gone through the temple marriage. And these are the people that, though they live in a celestial kingdom and become like gods, they will not be a god like Elohim because they are not eternally married. Instead, he says, they will become angels. Noah, by the way, was an angel in LDS theology. Somehow he missed out on the temple marriage. They will share equal authority, might, and even power with Elohim in one sense, and live as a God, but they will never be the highest God and go on to create their own world, all because they didn't undergo the temple marriage. To become God, the father of your own world, you must be a male who was brought into the priesthood. You must go through the eternal marriage ceremony in the temple, and you must live faithfully all of your life. Everything we've talked about so far, you must do it pretty much to perfection. If you do that, you get to inherit your own planet with your spirit wife or wives, depending on you know, what time in history you lived in, and produce your own spirit children who will then worship you as God the Father of that r- world or universe. But I want to make that painfully clear. You can only attain to that if you're a man. If you're a woman, your form of exaltation as a God remains a little bit different. You're going to be by the side of the man you married, and your primary task will be to remain barefoot and pregnant throughout all eternity so you can make as many spirit babies as possible. I'm dead serious. That's not a joke, guys. That's the highest and best form that you get. You are a perpetual spirit baby-making machine. And according to the eternal law of progression, this happens over and over And over again, ad infinitum, for all eternity, it will never, ever stop. Billions upon billions of worlds where gods exist and propagate their own story arc of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And the saddest part about all of it, beyond the obscene blasphemy, beyond the millions of people being led to hell as a result of thinking that they'll become gods, the saddest part about it, ultimately, beloved, is there is no end to the curse in Mormon theology. It just happens over and over and over again. There's no end to sin. There's no end to Satan. There is no end to death. There is no ultimate redemption. Mankind needs to be tested in order to become a god. So sin will always be present. Within this framework of the eternal law progression, arguably, there will always be a tempter. Why? Because you need to be tempted. Though he may not be Satan as we know him, he's going to be something else in the next life, or the next world, rather. And yet death will always be part of this endless series of worlds created. Why? Because the eternal law of progression mandates it. You have to undergo mortality to be tested. You must be born in the flesh in order to progress along this path to godhood. Mortality... Death is always part of the equation. In every aspect, the curse remains triumphant. Sin, death, and Satan ultimately have the final word. They have victory over Christ. And it deceives the adherents of it by the very same lie uttered to Eve in the garden. You will be as God. Is that not? Depressing. And so when we come to the end of it, the question you might be asking is, what do you even do with all this? How do you even approach it? Right? If article number eight, or article of faith number eight says, the Bible is translated inaccurately, right? How do you even approach that? Do you keep all this stuff in mind as you're witnessing to a Mormon? No. The reality is you can't. I would actually argue it's far better if you don't try to, and that you just go shod with the simple gospel that every one of you knows at this point. If you want to study this more, I mean, knock yourselves out. There's just much more to it than even what I was able to tell you today. But the point that Matt and I have been making for the past several weeks is an incredibly, profoundly simple one. You don't need to become an expert in all the various religions that this world has to offer. You don't need to. Consider the book of Ecclesiastes when it says there is truly nothing new under the sun. Everything that you've heard for the past several weeks regarding these gospels that damn are in one way, shape, or form or another, just slightly different than the next. This one might be the little bit or furthest out there in terms of your own worldview, but at the end of the day, it's just another old heresy that's been defeated time and time again by the gospel of Christ. All of these various false religions are going to twist sin in judgment. They're going to diminish God's holiness. They're going to diminish Christ. They're going to diminish his saving work on the cross and through his resurrection. They're going to tell you that it's up to you, that you can work and attain your own salvation. They're going to come up with their own sort of blessings. Every last one of them will do this. The gospels that damn, and there are many of them, all have their idea, in other words, of a problem a solution, a set of commands, and blessings. And that's why we showed you that grid to begin with. The whole point we've been making is that you don't need to be an expert on Roman Catholicism. You don't need to know Islam in and out, Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mormonism to effectively bring them the gospel. What you need to know is the text. What you need to know is the word of God. You don't need to read another book or sit through an endless series of lectures on evangelism, though these things might be incredibly helpful. In the end, the point we're making is the same that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 1.16. It is the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so the question I ask you today is, do you believe that? Beloved, do you believe that? If you do, you only need to become an expert in one thing. And every last one of you has it on your laps in this room today. There's an old illustration that's been used for many, many years, and it speaks of how agencies train people to recognize counterfeit bills. What they don't do is they don't take them into a room and put every counterfeit bill before them that has ever existed in the schemes of mankind. What they do is they give them the real bill. That's it. And they study that over and over and over again. And the reason for it is simple. If you know the real Bill, once you have a false come before you, you can spot it in seconds. You don't need to know everything else. And the same concept applies with the Scriptures, beloved, and more particularly, even the Gospel. What that illustration presumes, though, is that you and I will take the time to know our Bibles, that we will be a people of the Word and a people of the Book. That we will pour out our hearts and our souls and our lives into knowing the very word of God that God has given us. If you want to witness well to those who have a counterfeit gospel, you need to know the real deal. Again, from the very first step of this sermon today, you could sniff it out, couldn't you? It didn't pass the smell test. when Mormonism teaches the problem is that you need to become like God, all you need to know is that in the beginning, Adam and Eve already tried that, and it did not work out so hot for them. And from there, you can take them to speak of the fullness of the problem of sin, death, and judgment. From there, you can then take them about the solution and tell them about the person and work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. You can show them from the Scriptures that God calls every man everywhere to repent and believe in Christ alone. And then you can show them the very blessings that we inherit in this life and the next purely as a result of the work of Christ. Beloved, that's all contained in Scripture. And that's all we sought to show you with the problem, the solution, the commands, and the blessings. And if you're a Christian, no, longer, no matter how long you've been one, if you affirm the gospel, you know this. That's the beautifully simple reality about it. So when you evangelize, here's all you really need to do at the end of the day. Ask the person some questions. Just get them talking. Ask them what they believe the problem, the solutions, the commands, and the blessings are. And when they answer it, don't be content with a shallow answer. Don't assume they mean the same things that you do. 99% of the time, they don't. And as you saw today, it can be radically, radically different. So dig deep, have your Bible in hand, and be prepared to speak to those things. Number two, focus on the central claims of the Christian faith. Focus on who God is, who Jesus Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, what man is, and how God and man relate. Ultimately, all of that's bound up in the problem, the solution, the commands, and the blessings. There's a reason why we gave you that grid, and it's because it's Rather simple, but we also want you to be able to have it handy when you go to talk to people about Jesus Christ. Number three, engage people because you actually want to see them saved. If you take up every bit of this and you use it to call them an idiot, to mock them endlessly, to win fights, congratulations, you've won. But they're still going to hell. And that leads to my final point you and I must have a burden for the people that God has placed in our lives, that we might be able to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you, I know, interact with Mormons on a fairly regular basis. Whether through social media, through business practices, whatever, some of you interact with them regularly. When was the last time you just gave them the gospel and talked to them about this? Most of you, however, don't but all of you have people that do not know Christ. We do no favors by refusing to share the true gospel with people. We must be burdened for them. Somebody had that burden for you. Somebody had that burden for me. So with this series coming to an end, I want to simply challenge every last one of you to find one person, just one that you have not shared the gospel with yet, and do that. Take the time, make the sacrifices necessary, have much, much patience, but in all of it, walk forth now and obey. The fields, Christ says, are ripe with harvest, but the laborers are few. And so all we're doing is asking you to take up the word of God and go forth with us because we need your help. Let's pray. But Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the gospel. In it are treasures beyond our wildest imaginations, not because it leads to us becoming our own God, but ultimately it leads us having a restored relationship with our God, that we can know our creator, that we can be forgiven, we can have eternal life, we can have all the various blessings that you've promised us in scripture. I pray that we would be a people who simply bask in this awesome reality each and every day of our lives and give you much thanks, but that we don't stop at giving thanksgiving, that we would then take the good news that we already know and go forth in obedience to what you have called us to do and bringing the gospel to those who are lost. I pray for this church that we would be a people burdened for the lost. We would see them not as enemies, but as souls. Souls that desperately need salvation. Souls on the path to hell. Souls who were lost just as we once were. Fill us with an undivided focus, Father, that we might glorify you in this and bring glory to Jesus Christ through the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.